Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Decision on Johnson & Johnson vaccine delayed as Thonister warns no approval for under 60s would make vaccine targets virtually impossible and expectations build for next week's announcement of easing restrictions. On our first panel tonight, Fianna Fáil's Lisa Chambers and Padre Tobin of AIM2. And later in the programme, will you be whipping out the sun cream this summer as EU digital certs are set for June? But the government is accused of mixed messaging on the issue. And as President Joe Biden promises to half US emissions by 2030, are we leading the way or lagging behind when it comes to climate change in Ireland? Environmentalist and author Inan Lilauna joins us. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. But first tonight, a Child Rescue Ireland alert is still in place to trace a 14-year-old girl missing from her home since Monday. Crime and Courts correspondent with Virgin Media News, Sarah O'Connor, joins us now with the latest. What can you tell us, Sarah? Well, Matt, that cry alert, that child rescue alert is still in place tonight. It was issued in the early hours of this morning and it means that the Guardian and the PSNI are still searching for missing 14-year-old Svetlana Murphy. It means that they still have serious concerns that there's an immediate and serious risk to her health and well-being. And she was last seen in her home on the coast road in Black Rock in County Louth at around four o'clock on Monday. And uh, she was at that stage wearing navy tracksuit bottoms with a red and white stripe on the side. She was wearing a black zip-up top, black runners, and you can see there from the photograph she has long dark hair. She has uh, brown eyes, she's of slim build, and she's five foot one in height. And significantly, uh, she is in the company of an 18-year-old male, and his name is Nohus Makalvikius. And you can see there from the photograph, he has dark hair, he's six foot in height, and he's also of slim build. And they have been travelling in a grey high on a Valester car with the registration 132D13518 and they were seen in Urien County Down on Monday evening at 7 o'clock and there was a positive sighting of the car, the Grey Veloster, in Belfast uh, yesterday evening and Garthi and, and the PSNI certainly believe that the car hasn't left uh, the Belfast area. Garthi and the PSNI have been appealing to the public for their assistance in tracing 14-year-old Svetlana. She hasn't been in contact with her family uh, since Monday. They also directly appeal to her to contact them uh, if she's in a position to do so. They're uh, appealing to the public for their assistance, but they also are warning the public not to approach the grey uh, Hyundai Veloster if they do see it or if they see uh, Svetlana or Nohus to call the emergency numbers, which are 999 and 112. 
Sarah, thank you very much for that. Hopefully there will be a positive outcome from that particular distressing story. OK, let's move on. And we're joined in studio by Fianna Fáil's Lisa Chambers and Padder Tobin of Ain2. And we're going to start discussing the decision by NIAC today not to give a decision on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as to whether it should be rolled out, which means the stocks are now starting to pile up. Should NIAC have just literally gotten on with it and said, use this thing? Well, I mean, I'd love if they could issue a decision and tell us to get moving on it. But at the same time, I want them to make the right decision based on the evidence and to ensure that the decision that they take is safe and the right decision for citizens, because at the end of the day, we're going to be giving this vaccine to, to people in the country. So um, I think the delay is, is you know, it's not ideal. Um, but in some ways, I think people should be reassured that, you know, they're not going to be rushed. They're not going to bow to any pressure from the public or the politicians. They will take the time that they need to make the right decision and the correct decision and assess all of the evidence. And, you know, I find that quite reassuring, even though the, the delay is disappointing somewhat. Yeah, but hold on. I mean, like, do we have the time? Is that a luxury that we have to hang around while they look at And given particularly that the incidences of things going wrong with these vaccines is absolutely tiny. Yeah, I mean... Uh, Personally, if it were offered to me, I'd be quite happy to take it. Um, but that's, I'm one individual. Um, whereas NIAC are making a decision that impacts the population. And they have a duty of care uh, when they're making that decision. They need to assess all of the evidence. If they're not ready to make a decision, they shouldn't be pressurised into, into giving that decision before they're ready to do so. So if they need a little bit more time, you know, a few more days, it's not going to have a huge impact. I'm hopeful that the decision will allow us to vaccinate the under 60s with that vaccine. Obviously, there would be an impact on the rollout if that were not the case. Um, but there's no point in preempting or uh, prejudging what might come out of that. It simply is a matter of waiting another few days to, to allow them the space to make that decision. Padre, should the government be putting NIAC under more pressure to make a decision quickly? Well, I, I think they should make the decision quickly. I don't think they should uh, introduce the vaccine unless it's safe. The, the decision should be based purely on safety. Mm -hmm. uh, but the point is, I'm not sure why there's a hold-up with regards to the timing of the decision. There seems to me that there's an inertia in the administration with regards to decision making. So for example, uh, rapid uh, antigen testing. You know, this, the other countries and you know, civil society have decided and are using it, while this government has been thinking about it for the last year nearly at this stage. Uh, even intervals between vaccines, while other countries have lengthened the intervals to increase the number of first doses that have hit the uh, society, this government is still thinking about that, this particular issue uh, for a long period of time. I don't know what the holdup is. I think the decision should be made uh, soon. Um, but there are, there are other elements of the vaccine uh, rollout that I have serious problems with. Um, so, for example, today, the Minister for Health admitted to me that there are people who are over 85 who still haven't had the vaccine in this country, even though they, they want the vaccine, which is an incredible thing. So these are people who want it. This isn't people who've opted out, who nope. decided they'll... So why have they not had it? It, it? We couldn't give me a reason for it. I know there's about 1,700 people currently uh, who are over 70 who want the vaccine, who haven't been given appointments to get the vaccine as of yet. I know there's a problem with the National Ambulance Service who are doing the uh, vaccine rollout for those who are housebound. But it's an incredible situation that four months after the vaccine landed in this country, we have people over the, 80, the age of 85, the most exposed, the most vulnerable, who still haven't been given their first dose of the vaccine in this country. How could that be, Lisa? Uh, my understanding is that there are a number of reasons. I, I know Pather mentioned the National Ambulance Service, that they're dealing with the housebound, those that physically cannot make it to their GP um, service. 
Um, that is proving quite slow. There are times we know from the ambulance service that they are arriving at the home, um, they can't make contact, um, the person may have passed away, uh, there are difficulties in setting up that appointment. So, and, and they're doing about 14 per day in the different regions. So that is that is a little bit slow and they are dealing with about 2,500 citizens nationally. So that might account for some of that, but I, I don't know exactly. Yeah. 17,000 well, or 1,700 you mentioned, I'm, I don't know the breakdown of that figure myself. First of all, I think there's no excuse uh, for not rolling out in four months vaccine to people over the age of 85. But I'll tell you one of the reasons is it hasn't happened properly. There's no central database in this country for patients. Other countries like Denmark have a central database and found it very easy then to roll out the vaccine to all cohorts. We don't have this in this country. And that creates massive problems for the health service anyways. And now that you know, we, we set ourselves as a tech island and yet our health service is really backwards with regards ICT and uh, databases. And that's one of the problems why we have people who are literally falling between stools. So some of them are on the lists for doctors, some of them are on the lists uh, for consultants, but some of them are falling between those lists. And yeah, not that's a very fair criticism to make, Lisa, that we have known for quite some time that there was likely to be a vaccine and then we were told about the vaccines, that there should have been people put in a position to upgrade the tech systems and the digitization while the healthcare workers were fighting COVID over the last year? Well, I mean, it's quite easy to, to, to point out some of the, the gaps and the failings, and there have been some of those. But I think overall, the vaccine programme, you know, despite the challenges in supply, which I think people will accept that hasn't been the fault of the government, um, it, we, we've been consistently top of class in terms of comparisons to EU, other member, other member states. Uh, we know today that the incidence among the over 85s of COVID-19 is down by 99% in nursing homes, down 100%. you haven't addressed the question that I put to you, which is the failure to actually put digital systems in place so as to make sure that everybody could get their vaccine and also to ensure that the correct order would be used so that we would know exactly who was suffering from what particular types of illnesses and needed to get immediate under level court four or court seven. That's, I mean, putting in place additional technology to do these things, I'm not against that. I don't think it's something you could do rapidly and overnight. But I October think using, just, was, just to make the point, We knew that's going to be using, a, a process since I think October. using the GP network was the right call. Um, so we know that in each area, if you are of a certain size, your GP and, the, and the, the patient, they were connected together and it was done at the GP service. That to me made the most sense. But that's what was agreed. Uh, nobody criticised that process when it was mooted first and when it was agreed to. To point out smaller gaps where there have been, you know, it's, nothing is without and without fault, you're always going to have some... There's a, there's a 92-year-old woman in my constituency who hasn't had her first vaccine because there isn't a database that has allowed for this property to be rolled out. This government knew they were going to roll out a vaccine in this country since last October. Would any one of us go to a hospital if we have a long-term illness? We will have a physical copy of our record brought back and forth from a repository to deal with the information that needs to be collected. If we have to go to another hospital, we may even have a taxi bringing that document to the other hospital. The fact that in 2021, in, this, in the centre of this crisis, the government didn't get a project which was needed anyway together since last October is incredible. I think the project you're talking about is, is quite large. It's not something that you could do over a month or two. And to be fair, you've, you've Lisa, mentioned sorry, one... there were people discussing this in detail and I interviewed them from the HSE in 2017 about this who were getting frustrated at the lack of political will to make the money available, but also to take on the industrial relations issues of forcing this through. And like, that might be the case, but when we, when we came to deciding how to roll out the vaccines to older people, it's not the point to start setting up a new tech system or IT system. The case you mentioned, I don't 
have details of the individual cases. I know, though, if you are housebound, if you are unable to get to your GP, your GP would have notified the National Ambulance Service of those patients that fall into that category. Those names were sent to the National Ambulance Service and they rolled out the service. If there have been drop-offs in service for individual cases, I can't answer in that particular case. But that was the process that was set so up it's, in place it's not to just cover individual everybody. Cases. So, for example, at the start of this month, 5,000 people in nursing homes hadn't got their second vaccine. 5,000 people in the epicentre, the ground zero of the crisis in this country, where 1,500 people died at the start of April, three months after it arrived in this country, hadn't been fully uh, inoculated. Well, our, from the nursing home perspective, it's good news today. We've a 100% reduction, but that's important. I mean, it's, it's important to focus on the positives as well. We have a 100% reduction in cases in nursing homes. We, we want today, to be the minister, But the, today the minister has announced additional visitations in nursing homes. More people can visit their loved ones. Going back five weeks in a pandemic is quite a long way to go. Today, it's been a success in well, nursing okay, homes. Well, OK, and we'll give you that, and I think many people are absolutely delighted. Mm. But we also had the situation today where the Thonishta, Leo Varadkar, was admitting that if we don't get this Johnson & Johnson vaccine approved, on top of the decision that was already made mm. in relation to limiting the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine, we won't get our 80% with the first shot by the end of June. We could fall well behind targets and worse, we could have stockpiles of unused vaccines. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that to me sounds, you know, quite... Uh, quite the, the bump in the road. Um, you'll appreciate the thought is far more brief than I would be in terms of what's happening at that level. Um, but the, the figures speak for themselves. If we if we have a stock of vaccines that we were relying on to roll out to a certain age cohort and then the, the expert advice is to not use that vaccine, of course advice. that will change. Governments get advised on all sorts of things all the time and they often reject the advice and make the decisions that they feel with the bigger picture in mind have to be made. Do you think that this government at this stage, which seems a little little bit shell-shocked since late last year, would have enough guts to actually turn around and tell NIAC what's what and let us get on with the vaccination? To be fair to date, um, NIAC's advice has always been adhered to and followed. I don't think anybody in the Oireachtas has called for the government to go against NIAC's advice in terms of approving vaccines uh, and taking into consideration the health and safety of those vaccines. So, I mean, it's... Sorry, I'm not sure who elected NIAC and why is it that NIAC are always regarded as being right? Why is it that suddenly, that before this pandemic, we had so much criticism of so much legitimately that went on within the health services and the HSE, whereas now everything that is said to us has to be accepted as gospel? I'm not saying everything that's said has to be accepted as gospel, but I would be the first to say I am not equipped um, with the knowledge or expertise to assess vaccines as to their efficacy and their safety. And that's why we have experts in that field. So I think it's a different space to move away from somebody that's actually expert in, in the safety They've of vaccines. Had 30 million AstraZeneca vaccines administered in the UK with about 200 adverse cases, very few of them leaving, leading to death. You have a situation with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in the States at 6.8 million doses, six incidences where things went wrong. Surely the maths stack up to suggest it makes an awful lot more sense to take the risk and give the vaccines. Well, in relation to AstraZeneca, um, if we look at what other European countries are doing, we're in line with the majority of the other EU countries in terms of um, vaccination the over 60s with AstraZeneca. So it's not as though we're an outlier or we're doing something Can completely different. Briefly come in there. First of all, we're not, with regards to vaccines, I'm not talking about history. Today we reached March 31st target for vaccine. So on the 21st of April, we're reaching a target that was set by Stephen Donnelly 
for the 31st uh, of March. With regards to government outsourcing of decisions to other bodies, you know, like if, if you look at the lockdown that we have in, had in this country, we are a radical outlier in European terms. No other European country has had as long and as severe as a lockdown uh, as Ireland has. Today is the 205th day that workplaces are closed in this country. That's a multiple of many other European countries who haven't had radically different levels of morbidity or mortality as a result. Uh, and you know, the reason that's been, the reason that the government have leaned on uh, lockdown so much in their, uh, in their policy is because they haven't put the capacity in the hospitals. They haven't rolled out properly uh, the, the vaccinations. They haven't even done any cooperation on a north-south basis. We had a unionist minister yesterday in Stormont complaining that the Irish government won't share information with regards databases, won't share information with regards variants, and won't, uh, that the first they actually heard of the uh, new variant uh, uh, from India being in Ireland was through the media. Isn't that incredible that we have a, a Minister for Health in the north of Ireland who has, is, is finding out information from the southern uh, administration through the media? There's, there's quite a lot of issues you've raised there and many of them completely untrue. First of all, to say that we outsource decisions to other organisations, that's not the case. The government are advised by NIAC and they take that advice I'm on board. The, 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 well, if I could answer, the the, you, you've laid a lot of um, accusations there, so you've allowed me to address them. We don't outsource decisions, we take advice on board and, and thankfully, I'm really glad that we do that. I think the public are really glad that we do that, that we don't just go and make decisions without expert advice. The North, to say there's been no North-South cooperation is simply untrue, um, but it is a different jurisdiction so we don't get to dictate to Northern Ireland how they run their health service and their Lisa, vaccination programme. unionists program. are we have complaining always, that the South is not cooperating. It's not my concern that if the unions have a particular view. I, you said there was no like, North South unionists cooperation. Unionists who are normally That's adverse simply, to cooperation. That is simply not true. We have always reached out to the North. We have tried to have well, a similar I'll give an approach, but a different jurisdiction. Mass. Another accusation that you laid is that our, our death rate is not completely different to other member states. In fact, we are one of the top performers in the European Union in terms of having one of the lowest death rates something to be really proud well, of. So when you actually lay accusations and put wild, uh, what you say are facts on the table that are completely backed up by no evidence. And I, again, you started out by saying that... Sorry, you, the you, you started out by saying that there were X number of, of people of an elderly, elderly category and you didn't know why they hadn't been vaccinated because the Minister of Health wouldn't tell you. But then you went on to uh, push an opinion forward that you now knew why they weren't vaccinated because there wasn't a database. So you're just making up your own facts, basically, on this. First of all, that is absolute nonsense. Now, with regards... North-South cooperation, for start. OK, where was the secretariat in the southern government to properly uh, organise North-South cooperation? Where was it located? What department was, was the primary responsibility for North-South cooperation? I asked Atisha this question two months ago. He said he didn't know. OK, there's something else I want to ask you about, though, because uh, we had news today about a problem at Intel, 70 cases of COVID-19 breaking out at one of the construction sites that has been allowed to remain open. Now, would that not suggest that rather than opening up the rest of construction, we may have to actually keep the lockdown going for a while yet. Well, m my problem with the, con the closure of construction was, first of all, the closure of house building in this country. So right now we have about 9,000 people who are homeless. Because of the length of time the building of homes was closed, 10,000 homes didn't get built in this country. Uh, 79 people died of homelessness in Dublin last year. This is, a, like homelessness is a life and death issue. Uh, with regards and uh, the, the breakout uh, in the, uh, the Intel site, 
that is a, a, an industrial-sized uh, construction site. There's 5,000 construction It is not there. comparable to, to most uh, residential building sites whatsoever, where you maybe have a chippy or a blocky or uh, a carpenter who are in, in small numbers working on, on, on homes. And the second thing I will say to you, and people are saying that, you know, we, we shouldn't be talking about uh, opening up uh, right now. That's, you know, look back at December and look back at January. This is not December and not January. 1.2 million people have been vaccinated in this country, which radically changes uh, the situation that we're in. As, as even Neffet said today, the, 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 the formula in which we're operating has changed significantly because a significant cohort of those who are vulnerable are actually vaccinated at this stage, which just does give the government uh, opportunity and leeway to start to open up society now. Well, two minutes ago, you were saying how terrible the vaccination programme was. We've had too long a lockdown. I, I'm not it's sure. not sufficient. I, I'm it, not, it is there. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of... You're, now you're saying how fantastic the vaccination programme is. And I, I would agree with you that it's doing well and we're seeing the impact of that. In terms of construction, you didn't answer the question. If the lockdown is too long, you know, should we reopen everything? Should we have closed construction in the first place? Are the lives of those on smaller construction sites not as important and their families as those no. on larger sites? Are you suggesting that the virus doesn't, doesn't spread on small sites? Because it does. So, you're, again, you're, you're playing to the gallery. You're saying populist things, but you're not actually taking a position Lisa, on those things. Decisions should be made on, on, Lisa should be ma- uh, the decisions should be made on the basis of risk. A 5,000-person expert, expert construction site is radically different than three or four or five people working on a, on a house, maybe in, in completely in the outdoor setting. Um, and I haven't said that the, the, the vaccination process is fantastic, but it has happened but it's good to a certain to open level. Up, then. It's not good, it's enough, good enough to open up, is it? But it's good enough for this country to start looking at, at very, very simple things, such as click and collect, such a, as, as uh, some level of hospitality, happening outdoors, because the science says that outdoors isn't the location of the transmission of this illness. And that's why we have started reopening. There will be an announcement next week for further reopening next month and again in June. So on the basis of the success of the vaccination programme, the fact that most, the most vulnerable are now vaccinated, at the majority of those, we can now see the benefits of that and we are opening up. But to play okay. to the gallery and to say that, that X, Y, that isn't happening, you're not being reasonable in those comments, okay. in my opinion. We've had some technical issues, but I'm delighted to say we are now, John, via Skype by Paul Moyna, Professor of Immunology at Maynooth University. Paul, thank you very much for joining us. And as given your expertise, what do you think of the NIAC decision to date to delay making a decision on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? So good evening, Matt. Uh, so first of all, I think we need a decision as quickly as possible. I'd be very interested to see what the decision is. Uh, NIAC has previously advised in the AstraZeneca that you should be restricted to the over 70s. I think that's going to present a problem. If the same advice is given for Johnson & Johnson over the next two months, we're expecting around one and a half million doses of vaccines across AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. In that cohort above 60 to, 60 to 69, with 400,000 people, if we were to use 400,000 of the Johnson & Johnson, which is a single dose, we're essentially left with one million doses of vaccine that we're not going to use. And, and again, I, I think that's just unimaginable, um, especially we've entrusted the licensing of these uh, vaccines to the uh, to the EMA. The EMA clearly indicates that the benefits outweigh the risk actually across all age groups. So the, the explanation is given in terms of abundance of caution. I don't think that stands up to the data. If the benefits outweigh the risks, then I think you should go based on the fact that you do more harm by not giving this vaccine, unless you have an unlimited supply of other vaccines, which we don't have at this stage. 
So at this stage, if you don't administer all of those vaccines, you're going to introduce more harm. So I would certainly favour maybe some lifting of that inflexibility around the AstraZeneca. And certainly I'd like to see the Johnson & Johnson be used in age groups less than 60. Because if that doesn't happen, Paul, does that mean there's going to be a delay to the reopening of society? I think so, Matt. Yeah, I think like we, we got a bounce last week finding that we were going to get an additional half million uh, Pfizer doses, which is really, really good. But in my view, rather than using that to make up for the shortfall and potential limited use of AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson, I think we should be using all vaccines available to us and vaccinate as many people as quickly as possible and actually give everybody a first dose. I think all the data is showing us now and the real world rollout of these vaccines in, in the UK especially, single dose, use them as effectively as possible, as quickly as possible. And that's going to open up society uh, more quickly. And I think that could make a difference of one, two, three, four weeks. But for businesses, you know, four weeks would be like, a, it, there's a big, big difference in terms of being able to open four weeks earlier. And finally, Paul, we're seeing the pictures from India where they're having absolutely terrible time dealing at present with the latest variant to COVID-19. How fearful are you of it arriving in Ireland? Should we have mandatory hotel quarantine for those, for those few people who might be coming to us from India? I think it's going to be very difficult, Matt, to stop all the variants coming in. I think at best we can do if we introduce... Uh, mandatory hotel quarantine for, for India is the best I think we can do is delay the introduction uh, of these variants. I think over time, and if we, even when we get to the stage where we're fully vaccinated, other countries will not be fully vaccinated. These variants are not going away. So at some stage when we introduce mandatory hotel quarantine, we need to have some strategy in terms of when we're going to exit uh, this. So whilst I think it can delay the introduction of the variants, I think we're probably going to over time we're going to need to look at other ways to maybe control travel in, such as, for example, you know, if people are vaccinated, previously people who have been previously infected, if they're positive for antibodies and maybe, you know, PCR testing. So I think that's probably how certainly I would advise to go. Thank you very much, Paul Moyna, for joining us on the programme and also Patter Tobin for being with us. Lisa Chambers is going to stay with us because after the break, is there any hope for topping up your tan this summer or is the staycations for the foreseeable? And we'll also be hearing from a pilot who wants some clarity and action for an industry that has been grounded. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
Welcome back. And just to update that story that we started the programme with, Gardaí say the 14-year-old teenager who has been missing and for whom there was an alert has been found safe and well and that the alert has ended. So there's some good news in that. Now, Lisa Chambers is still with us and we're also joined by Owen Corrie, editor of Air and Travel magazine and via Skype by Nick Gammon, who's a pilot and a member of Recover Irish Aviation. Nick, you better explain, please, what Recover Irish Aviation is and who's involved in it and why? Well, Recover Irish Aviation, good evening, Matt, to start. Uh, Recover Irish Aviation is a, a group of professionals working in the aviation industry, pilots, cabin crew, engineers, ground staff, etc., uh, that came together uh, as the pandemic really struck here in Ireland uh, because we have been one of the probably the most affected industry and an industry that has seen the least amount of light over the last 12 months. And we came together uh, to form an organisation to help raise its awareness and what needs to be done to see a meaningful return to travel and what lo now looks like will be this summer. Many of you have been laid off. Many have also had massive reductions in your income, haven't you? We have indeed. Um, for those of us who have been lucky to remain in employment, um, 50 to 75 percent would be the, the, the region of, of salary losses that we are seeing. Uh, many of our colleagues have been made redundant and are suffering on the likes of the PUP now with no uh, sort of return to travel on the horizon, to, to employment rather, on the horizon for them, it's been very, very difficult for many people in our industry, um, but also, of course, for many people who, if there are 143,000 people in Ireland reliant on the aviation sector, all of whom have been experiencing similar things to this. So how frustrating has it been in the last week or so to see mixed messages coming out of government as to when foreign travel will be allowed again to be deemed, at the moment, non-essential travel being not permitted? Well, well, firstly, this is the first bit of good news that the aviation industry has seen in the last 12 months, and we, we welcome it. Uh, the adoption of things such as the Digital Green Certificate, which is going to allow for people who have recovered from COVID-19 and have antibodies, people who have been vaccinated and people who have tested negatively for COVID-19 to travel again. This is a massive ray of light for people in our industry. All we need now is for the government to fully implement this in a timely fashion. And the noises are, are right. We are going to start to see this. This is going to become legislation in June. Uh, so we would like to see it implemented to see travel shortly after that. But Owen Corrie, it would seem that the government doesn't seem particularly keen on allowing people to travel from June. Well, we are a little bit slower than the rest of Europe, but the good news is that aviation has kept its shape. Uh, Willie Walsh had a session with him yesterday where he talked about um, the fact that there won't be long-term damage, that most of what can be done within aviation and safety terms, structure terms, uh, has been done. The inventories are still in place. There is a little bit uh, for, you know, May, for instance, those routes from Dublin to Barcelona that Ryanair had cancelled. The cancellations have been extended into the beginning of June. But a lot of flights still in place, all those ambitious things like Aer Lingus, Los Angeles, San Francisco, all ready to roll. Ryanair loaded a full schedule for 2022 today, all the way through to October 2022. Sorry, do you expect all the previous routes that were there before the COVID-19 pandemic and the volume of flights on those routes to return to normal quickly. Well, you're from the city, Matt, you would know what Springer cattle 
uh, do when they're released out into the grass. But when we get the go-ahead from the government to fly, there is an expectation that people are so fed up that they will actually start moving again. And the aviation industry has been putting all those things in place the safety-wise, because th th this is an international problem. Europe's aviation is down to about uh, down by about 65%. There are the figures from Eurocontrol this afternoon across the 40 air, control, air traffic control regions of Europe, run by an Irishman, Eamon Brennan. We're down 85%. We've, we're in a little bit deeper hole than anyone else, but aviation is very important for us. And I think our debate would probably move a little bit slower than the rest of Europe because we do have, um, we've, we've, we, we have gone into a little bit of a negativity about international travel, understandably from that scare we got in January when our numbers doubled. But as we see the rest of Europe opening up, I think Ireland will follow. We'll probably be six to eight weeks behind the rest of Europe. I think our numbers more than doubled in January. But what about summer? We keep hearing from various cabinet ministers later in summer, but no definition as to what do they mean by summer? Is it June, July, August? When is it? Well, it's, it's a good question because, I mean, you know, what you consider to be summer might be different to what I consider to be summer. So, I mean, you're probably looking July, August, being ambitious. I, I can't see June, being honest about it. I mean, when you think that we're, we're just after implementing hotel quarantine, we're looking at India, all of these new variants. We're not um, fully through the vaccination programme yet. I honestly think the public don't want us to open up to international travel just yet. Um, I think they would be quite frightened. I, I personally would be as well to have it happen too soon. You know, we've come too far. Even if 80% of the population have at least got their first dose of the vaccine by the end of June. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think if we get to that level uh, and we see where we're at then, it's difficult to, to, to predict because we've seen the... I suppose, the volatility of the, the vaccine supply. We're getting new strains all of the time. The, the reason we have hotel quarantine is not because, I mean, the government were quite reluctant to implement a hotel quarantine, as we remember, but there was huge public demand for that um, because people really wanted to stop new variants coming into the country. So, you know, I, I think the public will, will, will have a significant opinion on this. Um, I, I, I'm not sure June feels a little bit soon. Uh, don't get me wrong, I would love to see things open up and I have real sympathy for, for Nick. But and the UK there. is opening up on the 17th of May. Yeah, and like the UK have taken, have taken quite... Remember, the UK's death toll is quite significantly higher than ours. You know, they haven't had the, the most fabulous experience through the pandemic either. Um, their vaccine programme is going well. They've taken a different approach to us. They're outside the European Union as well. They're on a different pathway to us. We're not that far behind them. Um, and look, I wish them well. And we want to see the sector open up as quickly as possible. Um, well, let me go back to Nick on this, because, Nick, what impact do you think will it have on the morale and mood in this country if we see English people flying off to their holidays from the 17th of May onwards? Well, I think it's important here not to forget that we share an open border with the United Kingdom, namely through Belfast. And we are going to see international travel on and off this island this summer, whether we like it or not. And that will be through Belfast if we do not get on board with these policies now put in place by the European Commission. Uh, last week, the airlines uh, and uh, other key stakeholders published uh, what was called the Aviation Restart Plan. The government needs to get on and support that. And I welcome comments from, from Owen there uh, suggesting that this is looking positive. This is only looking positive if the government engages properly on the Aviation Restart Plan, the Digital Green Certificate and the EU traffic light system. Um, otherwise, we will see a situation where everybody just drives up and flies out of Belfast.
But they're way ahead of us, Owen, when it comes to vaccinations in Britain and Northern Ireland. And as much as anything, it might be one dose of the vaccine only by the end of June. It looks like that under this traffic light system, people will have to have had both their doses of the vaccine before they can travel. It's not just about Britain, Matt. We're sort of, there's a lot of media from Britain fed here, but the rest of Europe will move um, as a unit on this. So we've seen Southern Europe agitating very, very heavily for the green certificate and Northern Europe a little bit slower on it. But the, the future for us in planning is to stick closely to what's coming from Europe because nobody is disregarding the health of their population on this. What we've seen in Ireland is uh, probably just looking at things like the emails that were released under the Freedom of Information Act, a lot of uh, pushback at the fact we couldn't move five kilometres and our own citizens were about 80,000 of them were living out in Spain and people were going to Poland or in Romania to see their visitors. It's not the same sort of a resistance to international travel that uh, some of the other but jurisdictions are in the world odd about. That we're having this discussion about opening up international travel to let people go on summer holidays in only a couple of months' time just after we were introduced mandatory hotel quarantine and we were hearing before the break from Professor Paul Moyna about the Indian variant and other things coming into the country. How can we try and square that off? It's going to be difficult. We shouldn't have gone down the route of mandatory hotel quarantine. It was largely a reaction to public pressure and it's largely about optics. Uh, what it it will achieve in terms of public health, I'm not exactly sure. It's got it's been given a lot of expectation. There was a sense that this would be a big solution to our problems. Our problems are being solved. Our problems, our numbers are going back right across Europe. For instance, tonight, Czechia, which was the basket case of Europe in terms of the number of cases, it's come way way back to, to down to mid table. So uh, right across Europe, this is a shared problem. There's lots of other people going through this these okay. phases on this, but none of them by the way, are introducing things like mandatory hotel quarantine. Of course, Lisa, we're talking about foreign holidays in the summer. There doesn't seem to be even any guarantee as to when we can start having domestic holidays. No guarantee that we will be allowed to travel between counties before the end of June, which means many of our hotels possibly won't be able to open up until July. Yeah, no, it is a problem and um, you know, indications are that we won't have inter-county travel probably until June. Uh, for hoteliers, I've talked to colleagues um, you know, that it's not simply a case of just opening up your doors tomorrow. You have to rehire staff. Many of them have moved on because it's been a year. Um, you have to get stock in, so you do need advance notice. And I think um, people will be looking mainly to domestic holidays. But as Owen pointed out just on the break, actually, that you know the Irish tourism industry, the domestic industry, the retail sector, hospitality, rely on inward tourism as well and people coming to visit Ireland. So you know the sector won't be just served by domestic tourism. Um, and, I, and the Taoiseach has indicated... Do you think would foreign people be welcome on holidays to Ireland this summer? Uh, well, look, we're, we're, we're a very welcoming country. And I think if there's a government policy, if it's based on evidence, on, on good advice, if we're aligned with the European Union, and the Taoiseach has indicated that we do want to align with the EU, you know, with, with the digital cert um, and with the traffic light system. So we're hopeful that we'll, we'll be able to do that. But of course, we will put prior, priority will be public health in the country, as always. And it's just too early to, to really say for sure um, how things are. Oh, what are you out. hearing about people coming into the country on holiday? Would they really be welcomed, given that we've just put mandatory hotel quarantine in because of our fears of foreigners? It's a big problem. The international coverage of Ireland, uh, we've spent 100 years building up the 100,000 welcomes, the Cade Miller Falsha, and the international coverage hasn't been uh, good for that. The thing is that it's short term, it's April, it's not that big a deal. If it runs through the summer and runs through a phase where the rest of 
of Europe opens up and we're left behind, it becomes a problem. You can overstate the problem where we are now, but remember this, International aviation down 65%. Our hole is deeper, 85% down. And we, some people still want to keep digging that hole. Thank you very much. we we'll leave it there. Our thanks to Owen Corrie and Nick Gammon for joining us. Lisa Chambers will stay with us because after the break, US President Joe Biden sets a high bar for US greenhouse emissions on this World Earth Day. But as our own climate bill faced a rural backlash yesterday, will we be leaders or laggards? Environmentalist and author Enin Lilauna joins us. Welcome back. Well, Lisa Chambers has stayed with us, but we're joined by an environmentalist and the author of a new book, Our Wild World, from the bees, from the birds and bees to our bog lands and the ice caps. In and Ilona, thank you very much for joining us. We had Michael Healy Ray, the Kerry Independent TD, sitting in that chair last night, giving out yards about the climate change bill brought in, saying that he, like all the other rural independent TDs, think it'll do enormous damage to the fabric of rural Ireland, that it'll undermine uh, the incomes of people and it'll do a blind bit of good particularly when all the issues are in China, India and the United States. What do you make of that argument against our climate mm. action bill? Blame in China. Where did I hear that before? And it wasn't for Michael Healy Ray either indeed. Blame in China for the ills of the earth. Although I think your man is retired now we have a new president instead. I mean that's, that's a real cop out. Because you know climate change is not going to affect rural Ireland. Somehow they're going to escape. Somehow there isn't going to be any floods. Somehow, the, what's Kerry County Council spending loads of money on sea defences for? For the crack? You know, I mean, do they not think that climate change is going to affect rural Ireland as well? You know, why are they saying it's all to do with China? But they say that the measures that are going into this climate action bill will disproportionately hit people in rural Ireland and people on lower incomes. And it'll do very, very little good that these things, as you mentioned, will happen anyway. Well, that was what they would say that, wouldn't they? They would say that. But the thing is, you know, we, we um, are a small country. We say to the people in China, well, it's all your fault. No point in us doing anything because there's millions of you over there doing the wrong thing. So you, you sort out your act while we continue to burn the turf, while we continue to behave in this way. You remember way back in the day when it was Fianna Fáil brought in the tax on plastic bags. And they said it would never work. Noel Dempsey stuck at it. And we were the first people to bring in a tax on plastic bags. I know there's a tax on plastic bags in loads of countries. And it was Micheál Martin. I mean, I'm not exactly a, a, a cheerleader for Fianna Fáil, but it was Micheál Martin that brought in the no smoking ban. And you said it'd never work. Could you imagine being in Spain or in Italy and they're not smoking indoors? Yeah, it'd never work. They're all doing it now because Ireland led the way. So, I mean, to say that, you know, we must wait for other people to do it, that's, that's mad. We know, the, we know what it is and we must do it. And rural Ireland will be every bit as much affected by climate change as anywhere else. Of course, you're a senator now, Lisa, but you might in future be again be a TD for Mayo. But will you be able to win a seat for Fianna Fáil if the party is regarded by farmers in rural Ireland as having gone down the green route, uh, undermining their incomes as they see it? Well, the first thing that I would say as somebody that has grown up in rural Ireland and lives in rural Ireland, Michael Healy Ray and the small number of rural independents do not represent the entirety of rural Ireland. Uh, and they are not a voice for all of us. And there is a strong support right across the country, both rural and urban, to do our bit 
for climate change and climate action. And there is huge support across the farming sector for the climate bill. And they will be the ones leading the way. They are, they are the innovators in all of this. And it's not just about the cows and the sheep. It's about transport. It's about personal choices. It's about flying if we don't need to fly. Yes, there was uh, a whole you know, word about that when you were all discussing it in the last section. I mean, this, and is, fair, the, this, is, this, is, yeah. this is Earth Day. We and Earth Day is, is restored the Earth. We cannot go back to business as it was or we'll be gone by 2030. Already we're gone over two degrees. Yeah, but Aina, the Already reason we were melting. talking about aviation yeah. is that there are tens of thousands of people whose livelihoods have been so severely impacted by the collapse in the amount of aviation that's going on. They yeah, want to get the, back to the rich people in the Western world. How many thousands and millions of people are affected by climate change in places like Africa when the rains don't come? When all the rains come, the six weeks rain come in two weeks and swoosh down to the sea and erode away all the soil when they don't have anything to grow their crops with when they're starving. Us rich, wealthy people in the Western world can't go flying off on our holidays or Konog is a Kono. Climate change is real and it's affected the lives of people in other places. Not us, because we are Bit. By the time it gets as far as Ireland, the Arctic will have melted, the middle part of the world will be uninhabitable because we're halfway between the two. Ourselves in New Zealand are in the parts of the world that are going to be affected last. And it's affecting everywhere else. But because they don't have the same clout on the world stage, they're not listened to. So climate justice is, is what they speak of. Will our climate happen. action bill that we're going through at present, and will the measures announced by Joe Biden today really make that much difference? They will, if they're, they will if they're acted upon. They will if they're acted upon. I mean, here's, the, here's um, the, the climate action bill and it says we are to be carbon neutral, emitting no carbon by 2050. And we're going to front load this so that we will have half of it done by 2030. But we have 2 million cars in the country. 20% of our emissions come from cars. And many of those are electric. 12,000 out of 2 million are electric cars. I mean, where's the action there, for example? It's not happening. And yet, and yet, because of COVID, people were working from home, there was less traffic on the roads, there was less burning of fossil fuels. People were able to live in houses where they didn't have to be in Dublin, they didn't have to be doing a two-hour commute, they didn't have to be wasting their time. I mean, why are we not going on the positive thing? It's not all to reduce our standards and make us all poor but and terrible. But the fall be was good. quite small over the last year, was it? 6.5%, which was quite a small amount, considering all the people working from home. Would that not suggest that it's industry and agriculture and things like that, which are actually the real issues, rather than the behaviour of individuals going to and from work. 20% on electricity, 20% on transport, one third, 33% on agriculture. Industry is way down at the bottom of that list of percentages. And we turn our electricity to making electricity from the wind, from turbines, floating turbines. There's a whole big, a whole big thing about money point being changed to doing that. And by using the wind, which is a sustainable resource, to make electricity and using that electricity in nighttime when we don't need it to perhaps make fuel cells that would fly aeroplanes with hydrogen fuels instead of burning aviation Lisa, fuel. Really it's see, possible. Do you really see us going away from having two million cars, the internal combustion engine moving to hybrids or as is wanted, fully electric cars? Fully electric hybrid is only a me yeah, But I the thing is that, get Lisa it, that it has to happen. Lisa. I'll, I'll be honest, I think it's an ambitious target. I, it, based on current supports, I'm not convinced we'll achieve that target. So I think we're going to have to put in extra supports to make it more affordable. There isn't really a second-hand market. Uh, electric vehicles are expensive. They're not within reach of a lot of citizens. So one of the things within the Climate Action Bill, you know, is, is that we have to, at the heart of it as well, make sure that it's a just transition, that people are not left impoverished, that we protect rural Ireland, we protect farming, and we can do those things. So it's not, uh, when I listen to the criticisms of some of the rural independents, you know, they, they make wild accusations backed up by no evidence 
evidence, um, but they're very easy one-liners to try and land a punch. And I think they're actually more concerned about electoral politics than actually looking after the interests of their citizens. Well, can you give me an easy one-liner, Aina, a suggestion for all of the viewers at home as to the th one thing that they could do that would make a difference, even if it was small? Well, you know, people always think when they're going to save the world, they'll recycle. So I will recycle my plastic bottle that I drank the water out of instead of chucking it into the hedge or throwing it into the sea. I'm going to die great. What are you buying water in a plastic bottle for? Do you remember Gay Borden nearly dying of mirth on the Late Late Show when Ballygown said they were going to sell water to the Irish people? You know, that so is all don't we have time for. buy we're out of water time. at all. That would be wonderful. Our thanks to Lisa Chambers and Aidan Ilona for joining us. I'll be back on Today FM tomorrow afternoon. Kira will be here on Monday evening at 10 o'clock. Thanks for watching. It's going to be a very good sunny weekend. Hope you enjoy it. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.